join me in prayer? Gracious Lord, in compassion you call us. By your mercy, open our ears to hear your voice and hearing you to return. I pray that you remove the scales from our eyes and unveil for us the wonders of your word. Your glories are revealed there. Be our delight, be our satisfaction. Awaken in us a new sense of expectancy, Lord, as those who put their trust in you will never be put to shame. Glorious Lord, we are yours. Be with us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. On one snowy morning at five o'clock in the morning, a missionary candidate rang the bell at a missionary examiner's home and ushered into the office. He sat there three hours past his appointment waiting for his interview. At 8 o'clock a.m., a retired missionary finally appeared and began the questioning. Can you spell? Rather mystified, the candidate said, yes, sir. All right, then, spell for me Baker. B-A-K-E-R. Fine. Now, do you know anything about numbers? Well, the examiner continued, yes, sir, something. Well, please add for me two plus two. Four, replied the candidate. Well, that's fine, said the examiner. I believe you have passed. I'll tell the board tomorrow. And at the board meeting, the examiner reported on the interview. This is what he said, quote, he has all the qualifications of a fine missionary. First, I tested him for self-denial, making him arrive at my home at five in the morning. He left a warm bed on a snowy morning without any complaint whatsoever. Second, I tested him on promptness. He arrived on time. Third, I tested him on patience. I made him wait three hours to see me. Fourth, I tested him on his temper. He failed to show any anger or aggravation. Fifth, I tried his humility by asking him questions that a seven-year-old child could answer. And he showed no indignation whatsoever. So you see, I believe this candidate meets the requirements. He will make a fine missionary that we need. The whole point of that is that spirit-given abilities are needed, but spirit-produced fruit is much more significant. Now that scene represents an important insight that all of us needs to grasp, I think, that effectively spreading the good news of Jesus Christ requires more than just a head full of spiritual knowledge. It demands a heart full of spiritual fruit and a handful of spiritual desire. Amen? I read a story once about a cathedral in England that had been nearly destroyed by German bombings. And one of the casualties in that cathedral was a statue of Jesus. In the restoration process of the cathedral and its contents, it was realized that careful patchwork could repair all of the statue except for Jesus' hands, which were completely destroyed in the bombings. The question loomed, should they attempt to redesign them? 
Well, eventually the decision was made that the statue was to be rebuilt, but rebuilt without hands. And at the bottom of that statue was placed a new inscription. It read simply, Christ has no hands but ours. Now, after doing a little research, I discovered that there are actually several versions of that same story circulating about. One about a church in England bombed during World War II, another about a cathedral in Germany, a third about a village in France, and fourth about a village in Africa. Further research claims that the story actually originated at a Catholic church in San Diego, California. The statue actually did exist outside the church, but the hands were broken off by vandals sometime around 1980, not by a bombing. But instead of repairing the hands, the church decided to put up the plaque at the base that says, I have no hands but yours. And the statue is actually still there outside that church without hands. Every one of us as believers ought to have a picture of that statue without hands, indelibly etched in our minds. Why? Because we are the tools that he has chosen to promote the gospel. Amen? Amen. As someone poetically wrote, Christ has no body now on earth but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which the compassion of Christ must look out on the world. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. Yours are the hands with which he is to bless people. Now, please don't misread me. Christ isn't powerless without us. I'm not saying that. The fact is, he doesn't need us to promote his gospel, but he chose us to do just that. Am I right? That's his plan. And if we refrain from participating in his plan, we're essentially presenting a crippled Jesus to the world. So what kind of Jesus are you and I presenting to the world around us? Billy Sunday once remarked that if nine-tenths of us were as weak physically as we are spiritually, we probably couldn't walk. Was he right? Or was he wrong? Only you can answer that question about yourself. How concerned are we then in these difficult days with the healthy progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think a healthy grasp on the gospel will result in a personal concern for its progress, and I think that's what we're going to see in the text this morning as we go to it in Romans. True spiritual service in the gospel will be characterized by certain uh, identifiable traits, traits that mark the Holy Spirit's operation in in a person's life. And the question looms, do we have any of those traits? All of us desire models to live by, don't we? Somehow our mission becomes a little more clear to us when we can clearly see what that mission is in somebody else. Paul is a perfect example of that. He once wrote to the Corinthian believers, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ in 1 Corinthians 11.1. What are these marks of a person with a solid grasp on the good news of Christ? Well, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, if you would. We're going to look at verses 8 to 17 this morning, continuing on in this first chapter. 
And in this text, hold on to your seats now, we can identify at least 10, 10 things that characterize the Apostle Paul. And I'm not splitting this message up into two or three weeks. That means there's 10 points to this message. You'll get it. If all of these things characterized our lives, I believe that we would begin to experience a greater passion and a deep-rooted joy as we communicate Christ to the community or to the world around us. In essence, a person concerned with the spread of the gospel, it's all contained right here in verses 8 to 17. The first thing is that we would exhibit a thankful spirit, a thankful spirit. Look at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Let me just read down through the whole text. For God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So the first thing here, the first uh, element that I think would be present in a person concerned with the spread of the gospel, as Paul was, is a thankful spirit. That's in verse 8. I thank my God always through Jesus Christ for you all. A little boy was asked by his father to say grace one evening at the table. And while the rest of the family waited, the little guy eyed every dish of food his mother had prepared. After the examination, he bowed his head and honestly prayed, Lord, I don't like the looks of it. <laughs> but I thank you for it and I'll eat it anyway. Amen. Sometimes I think that's the way we view our involvement with Christ and what Christ has called us to be and to do in the Christian life, right? It's hard at times, isn't it? It's been hard through this time of COVID. But we have to look beyond the challenge and recognize the spiritual benefits involved, right? We may sit around and look around us and say, I don't like the looks of it, Lord. I'm going to do it anyway because you asked me to, amen. Paul was a thankful man, and every letter he penned in the New Testament, with the exception of Galatians, they were drifting away from the gospel, by the way. We just saw that a little while ago. He thanked God for the people he wrote to because of how the gospel was working in their lives. You do just a little bit of a search. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. 
To the Ephesians, he wrote, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. To the Philippians, the first verse, he says, the third verse of the first chapter, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Colossians, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we read, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. He's thanking God for all of these people. Thankfulness should be the characteristic of every Christ follower born from above. Is that right? In fact, it is actually a command in Scripture. Colossians 3, verses 15 and 17, Paul writes, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And then, of course, that famous verse that we all know and love in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Superficial believers are very rarely satisfied and therefore seldom thankful for things. Paul was constantly thankful, not because his life was so great, but because of what God was doing in his life and through his life. I often marvel at how Paul could be so thankful given his experiences, don't you? I mean, 2 Corinthians just gives us a little hint here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 24, Paul says, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. How many times have you received that? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I'll boast of what pertains to my weakness. How could Paul be thankful for anything in the midst of that? 2 Corinthians 12. Verse 10 says, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Yet Paul knew that all of it was for the cause of Christ. He was thankful that the good news was getting out even at the expense of his own comfort, his own life, a true spirit of thanksgiving is what the old Puritan exhibited when he sat down to his meal and found out that he only had a tiny piece of bread and some water. And this was his thankful prayer. His response was, what? All this and Jesus Christ too? Is that your attitude? Mine? Or do you think we deserve more somehow? See, contentment is found when we have the right focus on God, which is Paul's pattern. Watch Paul's pattern here in Romans. 
Who did he thank? He thanked God. How? Through Christ. What for? For the, that the faith of the Roman Christians was world-renowned, that their testimony was spreading, and it was happening without telegraph, without telephone, without newspapers, cable TV, social media, cell phones, computers, satellites, or high-speed internet. And that's what he was thankful for. God sees that his word gets published even without an online presence, by the way. It does. And the fact is they had a good witness and the news spread like wildfire and Paul was thankful for that witness. Let me ask you, how often do we thank God for each other's good witness? I heard a testimony this morning and I was thanking God for that good witness. Just amazing how God works through people's lives in the strangest, most subtle ways and people get saved through it. And we think we have to build all of these big programs and buildings and all this stuff and all somebody has to do is read the word of God and their soul is changed. It's amazing when you hear that. I mean, usually we're too busy tearing each other apart to thank God for each other and the work God's doing for each other and in each other, right? The first thing a person with a good grasp on the good news of Christ and its spread exhibits is a thankful spirit. Second thing is you exude a servant's heart. Verse 9, for God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his son is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. The word serve here, for God whom I serve in my spirit, is sometimes translated worship in the Bible. Actually, it refers to our religious service. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it was used of the service that priests would perform in the temple. And as Christians, you and I both know that we are priests, right? 1 Peter chapter 2, as a matter of fact, gives us that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. That's us. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The question is whether or not you and I will perform the duties of a priest. And what is the offering that we present to God? Ourselves. It's ourselves. Our availability for the service is directly related to our ability to worship effectively. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable, meaning well-pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, your reasonable service. The word literally means rational. It's rational that you would do this as your worship experience. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. And as we've already seen, Paul had a servant's heart, right? He was willing to be expended for the sake of the gospel. We went into that quite a bit last time in the first 
uh, few verses, the first six verses. He offered himself. Again, 2 Corinthians in chapter 6. If you've got a mind to go there in your Bibles, beginning in verse 4. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying, yet behold, we live, as punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. This is how Paul offered himself. He said in 2 Corinthians 12, Verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved any less? Someone once said that service is the rent we pay for the space we occupy. So the question is, what kind of rent are you paying? What kind of rent are we paying? Do a little study sometime. Take a Strong's Concordance and see how many columns it takes to list all the references for serve, servant, and service. All of you were willing to come to church today and to sit. But how many of us are willing to leave the church today and serve? That's what Paul's getting at. Person with a solid grip on good news, thirdly, expresses prayerful concern. Verses 9 and 10, the second part of verse 9. As to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. Notice how Paul prays for his fellow believers, unceasingly and always. Do we pray for one another during the week? Do you know how encouraging it is to know that someone is praying specifically for you? Pretty encouraging, isn't it? Y'all, most of you, I hope, have had that experience and you can really feel it, can't you? Man, how often do you pray for your wives on a daily basis? Women, how often do you pray for your husbands on a daily basis? Do you think of praying for your Sunday school teachers, your children's Sunday school teachers, or the youth group leaders, or the worship team? You see, Paul prayed for these Roman Christians constantly, unceasingly, and always, he said. that The word unceasingly here indicates that there was no great length of time between his prayers. They were on his mind continually. He repeatedly prayed for these people, and you know what? He didn't even know them 
Remember last time we were together when we began this? This is a church that Paul had never visited. He did that with many of the churches. And what kinds of things did he pray for? Well, if you do a, a brief perusal of some of the letters that he wrote in Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, just to name three, he prayed for their spiritual strength in Ephesians 3. He prayed for their spiritual discernment in Philippians 1. And he's prayed for their spiritual wisdom in Colossians 1. If you don't know how to pray for people, open up your Bible and pray the words of God. There's plenty there. You can just mimic the prayers that are there. Paul must have had a prayer list a mile long, right? And he was faithful to it. And Paul would tell us exactly what he told the Thessalonians, pray unceasingly. Do it in the car. Do it in between conversations. Do it while you work, while you exercise in the shower, on the beach, wherever and whenever it's possible because a praying heart will always find a praying place. Amen? To pray unceasingly is nothing more than carrying on a running conversation with our Father in heaven. I know people that can keep my ear bent for hours on end about all kinds of things. They are nonstop sometimes. But when it comes to prayer, we get in a public gathering, stone cold silent, have nothing to say. For most people, a lack of prayer is not a word problem, it's a want problem. They don't want to be bothered. And I have to confess that I have found myself in those places at times. Have you? I don't like it when I find myself in that place. I know there's something seriously wrong inside my heart when I find myself in those kinds of places. Someone has said that the depth and intensity of prayer measures the depth and intensity of concern. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul gives us a great example here of what we're talking about. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18, beginning in verse 18, with all prayer and petition, Pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. In proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So, how concerned are you about the spread of the good news? Your prayer life, according to Paul here, is a good indicator. Do you exhibit a thankful spirit? Do you exude a servant's heart? Are you expressing prayerful concern? But in all of our concern to get the gospel out, as well as our concern in prayer, we must also remember that God's will is the rule. Amen? And so, fourthly, a person concerned with the spread of the gospel exemplifies a submissive Attitude, Verse 10 in Romans 1. Always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. You see, Paul's willingness to preach the gospel was always tempered by the will of God. He had planned to come to Rome and preach the word on many occasions 
But God had other plans for him. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I, often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far. Okay? God's will changed his plans. We see that again in Romans a few chapters later, chapter 15, beginning in, in verse 19, he says that um, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named so that I would not build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. And for this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing, and to be helped in my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while... But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. Verse 29, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So what's Paul saying? Paul had plans to go and preach to the Romans. But God's will circumvented those plans on many, many different occasions and sent him in other areas to preach the gospel. But notice something very clear here that that his plans were changed because God had directed it, not because Paul felt like doing something else instead. You see that? He didn't change his plans because of bad weather or a personal preference or a more enjoyable offer somewhere else. He changed them to do God's will for God's glory in God's way and in God's time, right? All of our actions, including our ministry, depends upon God's ordination of it. Is that right? It's if he wills that it's done. And I got to wonder sometimes, is that, is that really how I order my life? Is it, is it how you order your lives? James chapter 4, verses 13 to 15 gives us some incentive here to consider this. He says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you don't even know what, you're, what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That's so hard, isn't it? If the Lord wills. When someone has a handle on God's good news, he or she will exemplify a submissive attitude to God's will, whatever he wants, wherever he wants, whenever he wants, in whatever way he wants. And he or she will also, fifthly, exercise a loving outreach. Look at verse 11. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. Here it is. Sincere love for fellow Christians is not something easily disguised, right? Paul says, I long to see you so that I may, may impart some spiritual gift to you. But how often are we willing to show our love for each other that way? Instead of being on each other's minds and hearts, sometimes we get on each other's nerves, don't we? 
And the root is not Christ-centeredness, is it, usually, when that happens? It's self-centeredness. So a brief glance at all the one another's of Scripture in the New Testament reveals something very clear. That the one another that says love one another is the most repeated exhortation. I think there's a reason for that. It can only happen when we take our eyes off ourselves and put them on God, right? Paul had a deep love for these people whom he had never met before. He wanted to serve them, encourage them, strengthen them in Christ, impart some spiritual gift to them. He wasn't bent on what he could get out of them, but his first concern was on what he could give in the way of spiritual service. When you come to church every week, are you coming with that view as to what you can give and impart to others? Is that the first thing on your mind when you get there? What, what, God, what do you want me to do to encourage somebody else? Lead me to somebody in this church right now that needs a word of encouragement or a hug or, a, or whatever. Do you ever pray that prayer? Or is your concern about what you're going to get today? Well, I wonder what the pastor's preaching on today. Or I wonder who's preaching today. Or I wonder who's on the worship team today and what kind of music we're going to sing today. I mean, it's all good stuff, of course. Is that the main reason we get together? Not according to Paul. What can you give and impart to another person? Serving, wrote one man, is love in working clothes. Good statement. Paul was like that. He was willing to give to people unconditionally. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We've got a lot of scriptures this morning, don't we? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 5. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. That's Christ-like love. Do you know anyone who loves you like that? Sure you do. Mark them out. We all need that kind of love, don't we? Genuine love gives unconditionally for someone else's benefit. It's not concerned with making a name for itself. It's not concerned with what it can get. Even though Paul's primary concern here was to give spiritual encouragement, he understood the importance of graciously receiving spiritual encouragement from others as well. It's not just a matter of giving, but it's also a matter of receiving. And some people have a real hard time receiving from others, don't they? The give-and-take interaction produces mutual growth among believers. It's a fellowship. It's fellowship, really, in its truest form, and that's the sixth characteristic of a person concerned with the progress of the gospel. Number six is, is that we experience mutual encouragement, verses 11 and 12. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you. While among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Listen, my friends, don't ever think that you 
are above the need of spiritual encouragement from someone else. No matter how gifted you may be, no matter how spiritually mature you think you are, no matter how greatly God may use you in the ministry, you are never above being spiritually strengthened, encouraged, or helped by another believer. Amen? Because true fellowship in Christ is a give-and-take affair, isn't it? We're all members of one another, and we all need each other's encouragement. One of the greatest college football coaches ever, a guy by the name of Bear Bryant, when he was pushed to explain his philosophy of coaching, he said this, he quote, there's just three things that I ever say to my players. Number one, if anything goes bad, then I did it. If anything goes semi-good, we did it. If anything goes real good, you did it. That's all it takes, he said, to get people to win football games for you. And I can do that better than anybody, unquote. See, we need mutual encouragement. Romans 12, 5 says this very simply, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Someone has said that mutual encouragement is like a peanut butter sandwich. The more you spread it around, the better things stick together, right? It kept the early church strong, didn't it? Not peanut butter sandwiches, but <laughs> mutual encouragement. Kept it strong and steadfast and stimulated. Just read Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42 and on down through verse 47. We draw, as we draw nearer to Christ's return, let me ask you, is that needed any less? No, it's needed more, isn't it? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. The closer Christ comes, it gets to Christ's return, the more we need to stimulate each other to love and good deeds. You know why? Because we're going to fall alone. We're going to fall alone. We will be frustrated alone. We will fail alone. Together, we will grow in faith. Amen? Amen? When you see another Christian out on the street or in your community, let me ask you a question. Do you run right up to them or do you try to avoid them? I guess you're thinking, oh, it depends on who that other person is. <laughs> I know. I've been there. A person concerned with the progress of the gospel understands the importance of mutual encouragement. And a person like that also knows the seventh thing, and that's they exert a purposeful outlook. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I've planned to come to you, and I've been prevented so far, that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. There's a purposeful outlook here that I see. Paul says, I've planned to come to you. When we're truly interested in giving good news, we make plans to do something about it. Paul had plans, right? It says he had plans to visit Rome. He had a purpose in mind, to obtain fruit. 
Let me ask you, do you have any plans like that? Unless you're a missionary and you've already got your focus set and your vision set and you're raising funds to get on the field, because I know a few of those, right? We all know those kinds of people that are in the business of getting ready to go on the mission field and we say, wow, what vision, what focus. We should all have that, right? Maybe you're not going to another country to serve the Lord, but you might be going across the street to serve your neighbor. We make plans to go on vacation. We make plans to go out to lunch. We make plans to get together with friends, but do we have any purposeful plans for the gospel? I mean, individual. Paul was prevented from going to Rome because of other mission work. He was probably also hindered by Satan as well. You ever find yourself being hindered by Satan to fulfill those plans that you have? Did you ever consider that if you never have any opposition from Satan, that maybe you're no threat to him? As Christians, we should be concerned with obtaining spiritual fruit. It's one of the reasons Christ chose us, right? In John chapter 15, in verse 16, Jesus said to his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. And Paul followed suit with that. Paul had a heart burdened for people and only a burdened heart can lead to fruitful service. His heart ached to see people embrace the good news of Jesus Christ. How do we fit into this passage? Better, how does this passage fit into you? You see, a person concerned with the progress of the gospel not only exerts a purposeful outlook, but is also exposed by an obedient mindset. Verse 14, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Obtaining spiritual fruit is a great thing, but there's a greater driving force for our proclaiming the good news. It's obedience to God. As someone as well said, we do not evangelize because we expect results. We evangelize because we're sent people. We're sent men and women. That's why we do it. Paul says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And the word obligation here means one who owes a debt. See, Paul not only had a burden for his own people, but he felt that he owed it to the whole human race to give them the good news. From the cultured Greek to the ignorant savage, Paul says, I'm under obligation. At the foot of the cross, guess what? We're all on level ground, aren't we? There is no distinction of class. Everybody needs the good news of Christ. We're all sinners in need of grace. We're all sinners in need of good news. From the militant homosexual to the mentally handicapped, from the Yale graduate to the homeless addict, there is no partiality with God. And there shouldn't be with us. Selective obedience is not obedience at all. It's merely convenience. And that's how most of us view sharing the good news with others, when it's convenient. Do you feel that you're under obligation like Paul? Like, I owe this. I owe this to the people of the world. 
to all men and women and children? Do you, do you feel that the world owes something to you? Coming off all of this political baloney, I feel that for a lot of churches, they got into this mode of thinking that the world owes us something. The world doesn't owe us a thing. We owe the world the gospel. That's what we're saved for. That's what we're sent for. 1 Corinthians 9, 16 says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. That was Paul's sentiment. And Paul's attitude really is our model. He had an obedient mindset, but he also evidenced an eager determination, an eager determination. This is on number nine. We're on number nine. Verse 15. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He was ready, willing, eager, and determined to evangelize the people of Rome he never met. He didn't care what it would cost him. This is what he said in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And you know what? Eventually it did cost him his life. But life had only one objective focus for the Apostle Paul, to preach Christ. To offer good news to hurting men and women. He was always ready. And I know that what we're putting up against us now is one of the supreme examples of Scripture. But you realize, of course, don't you, that Paul was an enemy of the cross of Christ at one point in his life. And God changed his heart just like that. And if he can change a heart like Paul's, he can change a heart like ours. Near the end of his life, Paul still had the same determination as he challenged Timothy and us to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, re rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. An old saint by the name of Carl Grathwall this is the president of the Bible college that Dan and I and a number of people went to. He would always say this to us, and I remember it well. He said, always be ready to preach, pray, or die at a moment's notice. Right? Are you that ready? There's only one way that anybody can be that ready. You must be totally sold out to God with a white-knuckle grip on the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you have that, you will be one who, like Paul, is characterized by the marks of a true, of true spiritual service, a thankful spirit, a servant's heart, a prayerful concern, a submissive attitude, a loving outreach, mutual encouragement, a purposeful outlook, an obedient mindset, an eager determination, and finally, you will excel in unashamed boldness.
That's in verses 16 and 17. And I preached on that just a few weeks back, so I'm not going to go into that in great detail, but here it is, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by his faith. So as we wrap this up, let me ask you, are you ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Or are you like Paul who would say, I'm not ashamed? What's there to be ashamed of? It's good news. Sometimes I think we are. We try everything in the world to make it more acceptable to people. You know? But in so doing, we often weaken its influence. Vance Havner once said this, he said about the gospel, he said, quote, it is not our responsibility to make it acceptable. It is our duty to make it available. And that is a true statement. We need to make it available. However God uses you to do that. It's not going to look like the same way he uses me, and it's not going to look like the same way he uses a number of you in here, but God has called us and saved us to do just that, make it available. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Amen? Well, let's pray. And I want to pray the words of Peter Marshall as we close today. Oh, Lord, our God, even at this moment as we come blundering into thy presence in prayer, we are haunted by memories of duties unperformed, promptings disobeyed, and beckonings ignored. Opportunities to be kind knocked on the door of our hearts and went weeping away. We are ashamed, O oh Lord, and tired of failure. If thou art drawing, us close, drawing close to us now, come nearer still till selfishness is burned out within us and our wills lose their weakness in union with thine own. For this I pray in Jesus' name, amen.